Let's cultivate our motivation this morning by just reflecting on the fortune that we have, uh, that we've met the Dharma, the Buddha's teachings. The Buddha was a human who studied and reflected on the nature of his mind, on the nature of mind, and figured out how to um, transform his mind uh, and develop all the positive qualities to their fullest extent. And he did this so that he could be of benefit to all other beings. So today we can explore some methods to try to at least open our minds to that if we practice them, we'll transform our minds. resulting in more peace, more calmness, more happiness. Which is what connects us all. We all want to be happy. We all don't want to suffer. So let's allow ourselves to listen today with our hearts open to explore the information with an openness, a freshness, a gentleness. Great to see all of you out on this rainy, rainy, gray day. My name is Jigme, and I'm going to talk a bit about uh, the chapter in Taming the Mind um, uh, that's called Being Responsible for Our Lives. So Venerable begins the chapter by um, noting how common it is for us to blame others Uh, for any difficulties we have in life. Um, And when we uh, err or do something not so skillful, it's very often we say it's because of or due to others. And when others uh, err, we really immediately go to judging them. At least I do. It's very common. Mm. And so... um, she talks about, um, especially in re- relation to this uh, letter that this inmate wrote, that um, you know he came from a very difficult circumstance. So you know many of us have had difficulties uh, in our lives uh, growing up, and you know. So without 
minimizing those, realizing that there are external reasons that uh, really impact and affect us, but nonetheless, for us to really reflect on um, what from my own side uh, contributes to how my life is. But that's a pretty important question to ask ourselves. And we have to be careful that we don't go overboard and uh, start blaming ourselves for the difficulties that we experience. Because that wouldn't help. But how do we take responsibility for our lives instead of just staying in the bemoaning the fact that things don't turn out the way we've planned? Because that's uh, common to all of us. So I think what I'll do is, um, even if people have read this letter, I'd like to read it. It's not too long. Just so that you get a feel for um, how this fellow... uh, really set down any uh, blame uh, from a very, uh, very difficult life. He had really a difficult childhood. And so here's what he wrote. I've been thinking about personal change. After 14 years in prison and much soul searching, I can say with certainty that I have changed for the better. The person that I used to be is gone. If I were to meet him today, I wouldn't like him much. Prison and the act of having a significant part of your life and your freedom taken from you can be a very sobering experience. It doesn't take a really smart person to figure out that if he did something that cost him 15 or 20 years of his life, he was doing the wrong thing and needed to change. Some people come to prison with long sentences and drastically change their lives for the better and some change for the worse. But none leaves prison without changing in some way. I have been fortunate in that I have been able to make some positive and long-term changes in my life. Although I grew up in less than than ideal conditions, I don't hold my parents responsible for the way my life turned out. They did what they did, and right or wrong doesn't matter now. I'm the one responsible for me. Maybe if I had grown up in a different environment, I would have been a different person. But all that doesn't matter. It's all conjecture. It's a waste of time and energy to wonder what if. My path has been my path. The cumulative total of all previous days of my life and all the people, places, and things that occupied those days has resulted in who and what I am now. I don't begrudge anyone anything anymore. I used to, until I learned that all that negativity was robbing me of energy and life force. I still sometimes get in moods where I wonder, what if? But at the heart of my existence, I know that the results of the life that have been for me for 45 years are the results of my learning and different experiences. The choices I have made since childhood have produced the consequences that have brought me to this point in time. My choices, my consequences, my life, my path. What my parents, grandparents, siblings, cousins, friends, teachers, and all others did in the story of my life is secondary. Ultimately, I am the one responsible for my life. 
I blame no one for the direction that my path has gone. I do think that this path has proven to be a good one despite being at times undesirable and difficult. I have a unique perspective that is an asset and a strength for me. From this perspective and this pool of knowledge that is me, I will live the rest of my life much more positive than I did before. I hope to be an asset to the human race, a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. Now at this stage of my life, I can finally think. That's a pretty powerful letter. And I think for somebody to be so um, responsible for their own plight, their own circumstance, I think often it takes a pretty extreme uh, experience to move us into that. And often we don't have those extreme experiences to um, kind of jolt us into uh, reflecting on um, where I got, where I got, and how I got there. Um, So today I wanted to talk a little bit about um, how we can specifically train ourselves to take responsibility uh, for our actions, for our feelings, instead of blaming others. There's many uh, methods that we can work with, uh, with the mind, but I think in this particular uh, instance, Um, Taking responsibility for our decisions and and feelings uh, has a lot to do with um, the kind of communication habits and patterns that we use. That's one avenue, anyhow, to look at um, that I think would be quite helpful. Because by taking responsibility for our decisions and feelings, we give ourselves the power to change to work with our own mind. So the Abbey community lately, not too long, but for a little while, we've been studying a book called Nonviolent Communication, A Language of Compassion. It's by uh, Marshall Rosenberg. And one of the sections in the book addresses how to train ourselves to take responsibility for our feelings instead of blaming others. Um, so let me first just give you a little overview of this book. Uh, so that you kind of can get the framework. Um, and uh, the, instead of saying nonviolent communication each time, we'll just shorten it to NVC, so you'll know what that means. Yeah. So it's a way of communicating that leads us to give from the heart. So it is very much in line with Buddhist teachings. Um, Marshall writes um, that NVC is founded on language and communication skills that strengthen our ability to remain human even under trying conditions. And that again, very much in line with Buddhist uh, teachings that we keep trying to transform ourselves so that no matter what comes uh, to us in life, we are able to keep a compassionate heart keep our uh, mind steady and calm, no matter what happens. So the intent is to remind us about what we already know, about how humans were meant to relate to one another, and to assist us in living in a way that manifests this knowledge. He writes that it is our nature to enjoy giving and receiving compassionately. Sounds very Buddhist. 
So instead of being habitual automatic reactions, our words become conscious responses based firmly on an awareness of what we are perceiving, feeling, and wanting. We are led to express ourselves with honesty and clarity while simultaneously paying others a respectful and empathetic attention. So if we practice these uh, skills in this uh, book, Nonviolent Communication, uh, we end up replacing our own patterns of defending, withdrawing, attacking in the face of judgment and criticism. When we focus on clarifying what is being observed, felt, and needed, rather than on diagnosing and judging, we discover the depth of our own compassion. So I think one of the key parts here that's so powerful is that um, what is so common in this society is to use uh, language that has a lot of judgment in it. Yeah. And when we uh, communicate in that way with this moralistic judgments, it implies wrongness and badness on the part of people when they don't act in harmony to our values. And so when we relate to our world that way, people are right or wrong, good or bad, that really locks us into a world of rightness and wrongness. So it's very limiting, very narrow, very narrow. And when we communicate from this paradigm, we judge others in their behavior while preoccupying ourselves with, with who is good, who is bad, who is normal, who is abnormal, who is right, who is wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's that judging mind. I don't know about you, but, you know, that's like continual here in this head. Yeah. And so it was very liberating, actually, to think about that, that the basis of that comes from you know, being taught and being in a culture where, you know, when my needs aren't being met, I look at who's wrong. I don't look at what need isn't being met. I look at who is wrong. Yeah? That's really a radical shift if you think about instead of blaming to think about, just think about, and try to identify what need is being unmet. Totally different way to approach. So this blaming way of thinking that is so common, our attention is focused on classifying, analyzing, determining levels of wrongness rather than on what we and others are needing and not getting. When we express our values and needs in this form, we, of course, increase defensiveness resistant and resistance uh, to them among the very people whose behaviors are of concern to us. And when we communicate in this way, if the people we're communicating to in this way agree with us. They agree to act uh, in harmony with our values because they agree to our analysis of their wrongness. 
then they likely do that out of either guilt or fear or shame. Not so helpful. Not so helpful. So this NBC model uses a communication model that includes four components. The first one is the concrete actions we are observing that are affecting our well-being. And when we started reading about this and working with it a little bit, when you think about observing something without bringing in your assessment, your analysis, your judgment, that is so hard just to have an observation without all of the commentary. It's really difficult. I think that's the most difficult part. Now, that's the first step. Then the second is how we are feeling in relation uh, to what we are observing. The third is the needs and values that are creating our feelings. And the fourth is the concrete actions we request in order to enrich our lives. So this uh, method really... uh, teaches us to take responsibility for our feelings instead of blaming others. And we can see how our habitual language obscures awareness of personal responsibility. Dr. Rosenberg writes that what others say and do may be the stimulus, but never the cause of our feelings. Our feelings result from how we choose to receive what others say and do, as well as our particular needs and expectations in that moment. And again, this so much follows the Buddhist world view, you know, that the mind is the source of happiness and pain. How I choose to receive and think about what is happening in front of me then determines my experience. So when somebody gives us a negative message, whether verbally or non-verbally, we have four options as to how we can receive it. The first one is we can take it personally by hearing blame and criticism. We choose this option at a great cost to our self-esteem, for it inclines us toward feelings of guilt, shame, and depression. But again, I don't know about you, but very common. Very common in my mind. The second option is to blame the person who gives us a negative message. When we receive messages this way, the result, anger. Also very common. I know about that one. The third option when receiving a negative message would be to focus our attention on our own feelings and needs we then can become conscious that our current feeling of hurt comes from an unmet need. That's an interesting way to look at it, isn't it? It takes some uh, thinking and working with to kind of get to that place. But it sure sounds a lot better than the first two options. We know about those and what result those bring. And if we tie it into the meditation that uh, Zopa gave, you know, if I act with 
anger or any other negative emotion, I'm creating a lot of negative karma then that is uh, going to ripen into a result that is not going to be very wonderful for me. The fourth option is to focus on the person who spoke the negative words, focusing on the person's feelings and needs as they are currently expressed. When I read that, it brings to mind hmm, if one has developed a deep sense of equanimity toward all, that you would be able to move into that space pretty easily and just accept what is coming from the other without blame, without judgment, and with this sense of heartfelt compassion, explore that with them so that they could be heard, so that it could be understood. So we accept responsibility rather than blame other people for our feelings by acknowledging our own feelings, needs, desires, expectations, values, thoughts. So I'll give you an example, because at least I don't know about you, but when I first read this, it was like trying to turn my mind in a whole different way. It was like kind of difficult to get at first. So here's an example. So when I say this uh, statement, I want you to imagine that I am saying this directly to you and note what your reaction is. Okay? Just whatever the reaction is, just note it. You disappointed me by not coming over last evening. You disappointed me by not coming over last evening. Note that reaction. Now I'm going to say another sentence, and I want you to note your reaction to this one. I was disappointed when you didn't come over because I wanted to talk over some things that were bothering me. I was disappointed when you didn't come over because I wanted to talk over some things that were bothering me. So what's different between those two? What's the different reaction that you have? Can anybody speak that? Yes. Um, The first one for me would be fear and uh, blame the person who's speaking. And the second one, like I really compassion and love. Mm -hmm. And I want to find out, you know, what's struggling Mm with. How about others? Anybody else? Yeah? The first sentence started with you, which is putting it the responsibility on someone outside yeah. myself, and this mm-hmm. I statement, yep. which is taking responsibility yep. for my feeling. Yep. 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 Yeah. So I think, yeah, that's really <coughs> the, the key there. So what he writes is the first example attributes responsibility for the disappointment solely to the action of the other, which is what you said. Yeah. Uh, whereas the second example, the feeling of disappointment is traced to the speaker's own desire that was not being fulfilled. So just a few different words, but look at the difference, how we, how we are with that, how we take that in. 
So there's a number of common speech patterns that tend to mask accountability for our own feelings that are very common. So the use of impersonal pronouns such as it and that. So it really infuriates me when spelling mistakes appear in our public brochures. That bugs me a lot. Our two examples. Statements that mention only the actions of others. When you don't call me on my birthday, I feel hurt. Mommy is disappointed when you don't finish your food. Or the use of the expression, I feel dot 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 because you, so like I feel angry because the supervisor broke her promise. So pretty common ways of speaking. You know. The one thing that we've kind of learned when we're working with this model is that um, to speak without blame and to speak with responsibility for our own feelings, it takes more words. You know, we're really used to doing things in a very shorthand way, and um, that is not helpful. It's not very helpful at all. So. Um, we can uh, practice and deepen our awareness of our own responsibility by substituting the phrase, I feel, dot, 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 because I. So again, this is that I message uh, that people sometimes know about. Yeah, it's pretty common too. So uh, here's the example. I feel really infuriated when spelling mistakes like that appear in our public brochures because I want our company to project a professional image. Just a few more words and you get a whole new view of it, a whole new story about what's going on. Mommy feels disappointed when you don't finish your food because I want you to grow up strong and healthy. Puts it all on her, what she wants for her child. I feel angry that the supervisor broke her promise because I was counting on getting that long weekend to visit my brother. What um, Marshall Rosenberg says, writes is that judgments of others are alienated expressions of our own unmet needs. It's kind of an interesting way to think about it, isn't it? So if someone says you never understand me, they're really telling us that their need to be understood is not being fulfilled. If a wife says you've been working late every night this week, you love your work more than you love me, she is saying that her need for intimacy is not being met. And I think when we see these examples, we can see um, how close or distant our own language is to uh, what our, what our uh, unmet need is hmm? versus how easy to blame. Yeah. So again, when we express our needs indirectly through the use of evaluations and interpretations, Others are likely to hear criticism. And when we hear anything that sounds like criticism, what do we do? We put our energy into self-defense. We shut down. Or we counterattack. 
So if we're really wishing for a compassionate response from others, it is self-defeating to express our needs by interpreting or diagnosing their behavior. I mean, it just won't work. And that really brought home to me why, you know, for a lot of years trying to work on this judgment mind without really understanding, it's kind of like that thing, you may know that, you know, you're judging and you don't want to judge. And you can keep working on that forever and ever. But if you don't identify that the reason that I'm doing that is because I haven't taught myself how to identify a need that I have and to articulate that, then that judging mind isn't going to go away. It's not going to go away. And in this society, we don't, we're not taught about how to identify our needs. Yeah. And there's, a, there's a, even a gender bias around that. Uh, for women, we're socialized to care for others, so we always have to put our needs to the side. You know, so instead we're going to help the other. So there's that, you know, gender-based piece too. Um, and and as a community, when we've kind of been working on uh, even looking at needs, we are all pretty astounded at how difficult that is to identify what is it that I need or want in the moment. And then the other kind of, um, another level to that is that we're trying to keep these teachings in a Buddhist perspective. So we don't want to just open the floodgates and um, let our attachments run wild and try to, you know, get every need we want. So, you know, there's also that piece in there to kind of be mindful about making a wise determination, you know, if I voice this need, first of all, let me think about, you know, is this a need of attachment? Is this something that's a craving mind? Is this going to help me in any way? Or is this kind of a basic, you know, human need that we all function with, you know, that we all thrive in? Uh, you know, the need of respect, for example, or, you know, compassion, kindness, those kinds of things. So there's a lot of levels to this, uh, that's for sure. And I think, too, that one of the things that was helpful to me about this uh, model is that it brings a specific... A method, a specific technique, if you will, to start working with that um, really just in a short amount of time has really affected how we are communicating. It has slowed down our communication, first of all, in a, you know, and of course, when you slow down your communication, you have more chance of being more kind, more compassionate, more clear uh, with those around you. Because, you know, we can act, at least most of us, out in the world, whatever, we can act 
pretty kind generally. The people that we're closest to, that's where we get into the blame-shame game often, you know. And that's where it's really important to start looking at trying to identify our needs and speak from our side instead of dumping it out external. And that thing about putting it out external, again, over and over again, we come back to this in our teachings because we are so pulled to the external continually because of our senses. You know, everything is out there. Yeah. And so then we behave that way, we act that way. And we miss so much from the inside. And for us to find happiness, it's on the inside. So we have to train ourselves to look internal and to understand the workings of our heart and our mind. Because how many times have we put our energy and attention into getting something external and find after some time it disappoints, doesn't it? Where was the happiness? You know, it's gone now. Yeah. So, you know, if we really want true lasting happiness, that comes from inside. And that's why meditation is so powerful because that's the only method, at least that I can figure out, where we can cultivate our qualities so that we can transform ourselves, so that we can get closer to the Buddha. I can't do that by reacting to what you said to me or did. That's not going to work. So it is about transforming the internal. So this is just another one of many, of course, tools and methods to use to bring us back to get inside of ourselves instead of how easy it is to go through our day and our life and all of these external things happen and we just react, react, react in the usual habitual ways. And at the end of the day, we are totally exhausted and not particularly happy. Yeah. So it is about finding methods where we can stop that habitual reaction and look inward and change something inside. Change something inside. Yeah. So what would it be like to react to whatever's going on outside of myself without the reaction of blame? And instead articulate what I'm needing. That sounds pretty wonderful. But like everything else in this path, you know, doesn't come quick. We have to practice over and over and over. But at least there's a method here that offers some uh, light. (laughs) Any comments about this? Yeah? Um, This has been really great. Because um, I have, um, since I was spinning my head over over 
something at work that's trying to figure out how many new dresses so that it doesn't cause. And it's sort of like, it's almost like I was beaming Jigme. Help me figure out how to do this. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> We'll thank we'll thank uh, Marshall here. <laughs> yeah, he did the work. Yeah. Yeah. Is 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 that a book you got from the Yes, 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 yes. I brought it in. There's a website. There's a whole. There's a game. There's all kinds of uh, uh, helpful tools uh, so that we can uh, uh, learn this. Because it is, it, at least for me, it was quite a radical paradigm shift, really. Um, um, and it felt like a piece that I was missing um, to actually turn some of these habitual patterns in the mind. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I've worked with this for a long time, Marshall. Oh. On the flight to Arizona. Oh. And do workshops. Oh, wonderful. But the one thing that I didn't get was I feel because I need, and that when I heard you say it, it opened, opened my heart, and I think it allowed a heart connection between yes. the people that just, the blame didn't, or even saying I need something without the whole thing. So yeah, yeah. I, thank you. I just have never gotten that. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Um, just to again, too. You know, many of the Buddhist teachings they talk about. You know, what we're trying to do is keep our heart open, and we all want that. Every one of us. There isn't a person here that doesn't, of course. But when the rubber meets the road and somebody is blaming me right in front of my face. <laughs> Where'd that go? Yeah. Where'd that go? And so, I mean, this is just like everything. It's going to take some work. But again, at least there's a different paradigm to work with now that uh, has this uh, clarity and uh, heart openness. Yep. When you talk about attachment, letting go of attachment, does that mean... um, how, what would that look like in relation to your children? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a very complex question. <laughs> um, somebody that has a kid might want to help me with that. How about Zopa? You've done a lot of work with that. I've done a lot of work with this. Well, yeah. in a good way. And it's not done yeah. so. Uh, with my son mostly on the cushion, but then what I learned from the cushion, trying to communicate in a, a way that's helpful. So the way, one way I think about it is um, compassion for him without my conditions on him, and that's what, that's mm-hmm. what's hard. <laughs> um, is that those close around us or our children or or towards our own parents. We love them, but we have lots of conditions in that love. Um, and then when they don't act with those conditions, we don't feel so loving. <laughs> and so it's more like being able to see uh, our children as uh, just other suffering, sentient beings who were here to actually assist with that compassion 
rather than, uh, well, one thing that's coming to mind is something Venerable had me meditate on a lot to help me get some, some space. Um, there's no my son in your son. <laughs> there's no mine in there, and there's no son in there. In other words, there's a person having his life. And when I stick mine on there and son on there, it just gets loaded. So to the degree I can act as a parent, you know, I mean, do the things that good parents are supposed to do, but get some of that mine out of there and some of what I, what I load up a son should do and a son should be, then we do a lot better. Mm-hmm. How does that say that help? Yeah. It's really complex. It's just, yeah. You have to keep coming back to it with compassion, mm-hmm. compassion when your way through all the impatience and all the stuff they hand you. And see all of that as they're great teachers. They're really incredible teachers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you got that. We learn from them. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that's really useful for us to remember in general, but especially attachment with um, family members, is where it gets really difficult. I don't have any kids, but you know, family in general, I mean, children for their parents can be as strong as parents for the children. But uh, one thing that often comes up is like, what does it look like to be compassionate? What does it look like, you know, to not have attachment? But that's actually the wrong question to ask because um, it doesn't look like anything because compassion isn't an action and an attachment isn't an action. Those things aren't things we do. We We have actions that we do out of compassion but the actions themselves are just actions. So um, the point is that when we are trying to let go of our attachment, it's not that we necessarily act differently. Um, Usually it involves acting differently also, but that's not really the point. The point Mm -hmm. is changing our own minds and being able to look at the situation differently. Mm -hmm. If we don't clearly differentiate between what we're thinking, the mental process, and the Dharma actions we take on our minds, and the physical actions that we have outwardly, then we have this really like extremism that goes on in our minds where it's like, well, compassion means I'm a doormat. Um, you know, mm-hmm. kindness means I do everything everybody tells me to do. Mm-hmm. You know, we just can't differentiate. And, you know, if it was such that the two were the same, that having um, compassion in our minds and doing you know, that, that our minds and the way we think about the situation has to be identical to actually what we do in the situation, then we couldn't actually have bodhisattvas because we couldn't have anybody who had skillful means because they couldn't <laughs> yeah. think one way and act a different way. Differently. Mm-hmm. And in some situations, to be kind, we have to act outwardly wrathfully or we have to be very stern and clear and that's the way we manifest our kindness. Mm-hmm. So I think most importantly, before mm-hmm. we even decide how we're going to do anything is to clearly differentiate between what we think and what, and, and what we do and then work on what we think first. And I think, too, why this is so helpful is because this is kind of a bridge between that. If I can figure out what it is that is needed, especially in relationship to a kid, and... and um, you know, reflect on kind of what blame or what story or what all of those sticky expectations that I'm carrying around with me to clear that out a little bit, then at least to communicate 
a, a need without the distress of the blame, you know, is going to help everybody in the situation, you know, or whoever it is. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a difference, too. You have to look at attachments as I, me, my, or you. And you have attachment because you are some, somewhat what Mental Brazil Jimmy was talking about it, but me. My kids should do this because I did this for them. Mm-hmm. And compassion is other-oriented. Mm-hmm. You're doing it for them yeah. rather than yourself. And that's the difference. Mm-hmm. If you get rid of the I, me, my, mm-hmm. you know, then all of a sudden the compassion. But if you think your kids should do something because you did something for them, that's I-oriented. Yeah. And that'll yeah. that good every time. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And, I, and I had an experience. I, we left home, I don't know, we were in our 20s, I guess, and then moved out here and left our folks in Iowa. And I never thought anything about that until about six years, eight years ago, my kids left here and went to Oklahoma. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, it's a different thing. You know? How did they do that to me? <laughs> and, and it's different. And, and I had to deal with the same thing that, that, that Zopa said. You, know, you, have to, you have to get on that compassion thing. And it's, it's got to be them-oriented. Mm-hmm. And that was best for them. Mm-hmm. It's not best for me, but then it's not about me. It's about them. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, uh, that's that's the thing you have to look at compassion and attachment. You know, you aren't dejecting them or, or taking yourself away from them. It's just yeah. a different way of looking at it. Yeah. You're not clinging on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes? I just wanted to think how helpful I found. Um, uh, when you were talking about uh, something that can be a stimulus but not a cause, because I think mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. often um, I go straight to that's a cause, yeah. where a stimulus stands on its own, and and I want to thank you. That was very helpful. Yeah. yeah. And again, it's to me that language speaks more about the dependent arising, all the causes and conditions. Here's a piece of stimulus. There's something. There's something. Cause to me always is you cause. You. It's one thing. Whereas, so it, it reflects more exactly how these things arise, that there's so many pieces. And the same uh, concept really is not just at play with humans either. I, I was thinking about... Um, a, a dog that has been abused and might bite you, and that there, 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 I, there I am, you know, with all kindness and compassion, but the dog is going to bite me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> 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 As time goes by, uh, you know that that the dog can um, re re um, reassess things and yeah. and. And can and I and come into a loving relationship with the person yeah. that it might have bitten initially. Yep. 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 Yeah. Well, maybe not. <laughs> well, yeah. but the that's, the that's the important piece that I have learned from the Dharma and from this language is that, I mean, as Venerable John Pell said, the the thinking, the compassion is a is a uh, an experience within the mind, and then 
reaction separate and they don't have to coincide, mm-hmm. the behavior of a child and the sentient being who wants to be happy and not suffer are totally also two different things. And I think sometimes we get into the attachment and we get into a lot of the difficulties that a relationship, at least I have, and I still do, is that when someone does something that I respond to in a negative way, they immediately go into the enemy category. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't separate the being who's trying to be happy mm-hmm. and the one right now is just, you know, behaving in a way that's harmful for them and causing some reaction to me. So there's a lot of, mm-hmm. you could be a terribly inappropriate, uh, negative behaving person and still be the sentient being who wants more than anything to be happy. Mm-hmm. So extricating yeah. those two things also gives the person space to then you know, be supported in a way that's mm-hmm. not so binding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one thing that we've seen with this method is that when uh, somebody lent us some tapes of him, uh, Marshall uh, Rosenberg, doing some work with people and when you look at somebody working with this nonviolent communication method, it is this um, beautiful flow of open heart, taking in information, identifying need, using language so that that can be heard. The other then opens up. Then they have some response. Then they hand that back. And so it's this lovely back and forth um, that then people come to uh, a lovely, uh, not even resolution, but just a, a understanding. Yeah, understanding. Yeah, understanding. Yeah, with heart open. And yeah, coming to empathy, there it is. Yeah, that's the word. Coming to empathy. Yeah. Yeah. I may not like what you say, I may not agree with it, but my heart is with your heart with it. Yeah. And geez, that may be as good as it gets until we can, you know, move along the path here more. Well, we've used all our time up. Why don't we just sit quietly for a few moments here and then we'll dedicate. Due to this merit, may we soon <coughs> attain the enlightened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forever.